If you want a great conversation with a Philadelphia sports figure you should know more about, listen to One on One with Matt Leon on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Did you guys have a pool growing up that you went to? I had a pool in my backyard. Oh. Yeah, my family, we had a pool. They still do live in the same place. It was one of the selling points to get friends to come over to our house, honestly. Okay. Now, I did not have a pool. I wasn't a big pool guy. I love going to the beach. I'll go like ways deep in the water. I'll do that sort of thing. I'll go into the shallow end. I'll, I love me a good hot tub, but I'm not jumping into a pool like super deep and swimming laps. It's just, it's just never been my thing. I had a pool, Linwood Gardens, right off of Cheltenham Avenue growing up. Still go there with my family to this day. But yeah, the ice cream truck shows up. You got a playground there. And just you had people from all over the neighborhood and community coming in and hanging out. I only have good memories associated with it. Now, it's important to remember that swimming pools, for all the fun that they bring us and all the good memories we have from every summer, they've also played a painful role in this country's history of racial segregation. And it wasn't too long ago that swimming pools were one of the biggest battlegrounds in the fight for civil rights. The African-American, Black American experience, the separation from water was a violent one, either to keep you from running away as a slave or to prevent you from having fun. I'm Jay Scott Smith. I'm Sabrina Boyd-Serka. I'm Brian Seltzer. We're going to talk with KYW Community Impact reporter Raquel Williams about the exhibit that's happening at the Fairmount Waterworks that really kind of forces us to acknowledge some pretty harsh truths about pools and their effects on America's black community. Before we get into that, though, we've been talking a lot about the increasing violence in this city and especially around Temple's campus, unfortunately. We've talked about the shooting deaths of Amir Jones and Samuel Collington that happened towards the end of last year. Just a few days ago, two teenage girls were shot by a 15-year-old at Broad and Cecil B. Moore. That's right in their campus. Yesterday, Temple announced some updates to their campus safety plan, and they've got a lot in here. So let's just let Tim Jimenez explain what is new. Temple is touting a new security camera program. Landlords who own properties nearby and sign up can get a grant worth up to 2500 bucks if they install lighting and or surveillance cameras. Temple is also working on establishing a neighborhood watch program. Public safety ambassadors who would be trained in crime prevention would patrol the areas on and around campus to help out police. Also, Temple will help students who have safety concerns move from their off-campus housing to on-campus housing for the semester. The way the school put it, any student who needs a bed will get one. I got to say, I have been pretty impressed with what Temple has been doing and some of the steps they've taken to try and make the environment around campus safer. Charles Ramsey, that's a name that people around here might know, the former police commissioner. He was recently tapped by Temple to be a consultant for safety on campus. They conducted a poll with students about how students on campus feel about safety. I think that's an important step towards keeping this whole thing transparent. And just last week, Temple Leadership met with Mayor Jim Kenney and Danielle Outlaw, the current police chief here in Philly, about how to address some of the issues on campus. So at least on the surface, it seems to me like Temple is trying to be proactive. That's a serious issue. And you can check out our show notes for links for more information about how you can apply for some of these security grants that Temple is going to be providing. We've also been kind of standing by. If you remember last week, we had three guys who were trying to become Philadelphia school superintendent. Well, we don't know who that winner is going to be, but whoever it is, is at least going to have a head start on trying to solve one of the school district's biggest problems. 
they're planning on doing a deep dive on the infrastructure of the school's buildings, which as anybody who's followed the Philadelphia School District over the last few years, there have been all sorts of issues with crumbling infrastructures. The buildings are not structurally sound. There's asbestos issues. There's issues of mold or teachers were getting sick. There were all these different problems going on there. This deep dive in infrastructure will also then use those findings to figure out how best to spend some of the federal stimulus money that the city's going to be getting to try to fix these buildings up. I mean, how often we talk to Mike DiNardo, KYW News Radio's education reporter, about the state of the school district of Philadelphia. We hear, yes, performance is one thing, but it's just the infrastructure, the buildings. On average, they're 70 years old, and they have so many safety issues built into them, like you said, Jay. But to your point, Jay, about the federal stimulus money, the school district, now this is the school district. We're not talking about the city of Philadelphia. We're not talking about the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Just the school district alone is getting $1.1 billion in federal aid from the American Rescue Plan. And of that $1.1 billion, $325 million is being earmarked specifically for infrastructure improvements. So that is a lot of money. We know there's a ton of work that needs to be done in terms of infrastructure within the school district, but that's going to help. I think a part of this whole study is to see where that money should be best spent. And unfortunately, there could be some schools that are just beyond repair and need to close. I mean, I'm going to cross my fingers that that doesn't happen, but that's part of the whole all of this, this big issue that we do need to address. Well, here's something else that we definitely need to address. Did anyone see The Masked Singer last night? No, but I know where you're going with this. So apparently last night on The Masked Singer, there was a thing or a thingamabob as it was actually called and they at the end of this performance they reveal they pull off the big mascot head to reveal the person the celebrity underneath it and in this case the person who was the thingamabob underneath the mask was Philadelphia Eagle offensive lineman Jordan Mailata Jordan Mailata is 6 foot 8 and 365 pounds imagine that coming through there Apparently, really great pipes. This like shocked everybody that the big man could actually could actually blow like this on national TV. You really do have to look up these these videos of him singing because yes. when even when you don't know who it is, he was surprisingly good. And this feels like Troy Bolton of today for those who have seen High School Musical. Rare crossover, and interestingly, one of those few few people who would be interested in the masked singer and sports is Christina Luca Coppicer. I only know about this. I honestly have no interest in watching this show, but I know about it because I saw her tweet that she had called it, that she knew who it was based on his voice, and I don't think very many people guessed that. I wouldn't have guessed it, that's for sure. Yeah, I didn't watch The Masked Singer before, and I'm pretty certain that even after seeing these clips, I'm not going to start watching it now. But we have to respect. We have to respect what Jordan's doing. He's a former rugby player from Australia, and one of the things that I loved about working in sports for a while and getting to know some of the athletes is they're not these one-dimensional people that only do the whole sports thing. They've got a lot of other stuff going on. There is a long history of athletes being like performers, being singers. Just on The Masked Singer alone, there have been 12 different current or former athletes who have been under the mask, including Tony Hawk, Leila Lee, Terry Bradshaw. Rob Gronkowski was in there. Former former Major League pitcher Barry Zito was there. Logan Paul was one of them. Antonio Brown, the, the now disgraced former Tampa Bay Buccaneer. Dwight Howard, the former 76er, was also amongst those on that list. Uh, uh, Chloe Kim was in that grouping, the, the, Olympic, the, the Olympic athlete. 
I don't watch the show, but now I might actually have a passing interest in this moving forward. Now, something that we have a deep interest in is the history of segregation in pools. And we're going to talk about that with Raquel Williams. That's coming up next. I'm Jay. I'm Sabrina. I'm Brian. And history exists to be remembered, whether that history is good or bad, whether it's something that you like or something that makes you uncomfortable. And over at the Fairmount Waterworks, an art exhibit is forcing us to come face to face with some pretty uncomfortable events from this country's recent past. And we're joined today by KWW News Radio's community impact reporter, Raquel Williams. Raquel, thank you so much for joining us here. Raquel, also the host, of course, of Bridging Philly here Thanks on KWW News Radio. for having me back. So you checked out this exhibit at the Waterworks mm-hmm. called Pool, yeah. A Social History of Segregation. Walk us through this whole exhibit dealing with segregation and swimming pools. First of all, I'm thinking segregation and swimming pools. What kind of exhibit could this possibly be? I mean, this what is this? So I was. it's definitely something that uh, raises your eyebrow and, and you become very curious. When you walk in, there are pictures of people swimming. The first thing that you come to, the first actual little area that you can interact with, because I call it semi-immersive, there's kind of a simulated wading pool against a wall where there seems to be water and stools around it. You can sit there, and then in front of you is a screen of different people from different backgrounds talking about their situations and their lives and experiences with water, with swimming, and how long they've been swimming. A black woman's surf club, they were talking about their their surfing situations. I'm like, wow, black women surf? <laughs> I mean, of course, everybody could do everything, but I never heard of such a surf club. And you, you get to hear different experiences and different variations of experience with the, with water. Then you, after you leave there, you kind of walk into the main room of the waterworks, the old waterworks building. It's over 100 years old. Of course, it was ravaged by Ida. The whole thing was supposed to actually take place uh, last September before Ida came and destroyed everything. But they cleaned it up and got it back together. And it's like an old, empty, giant, Olympic-sized pool. But it's empty. And then you have figurines of black figurines sitting at either end of the pool. And as you walk through... There are different video monitors, and there's like a, a little reflective monitor, like they call it the reflective pool, but it's actually a monitor showing your, a reflection of water. It's just, it's a feast for the eyes. It definitely is. And then after your eyes stop really feasting in general, then you kind of zero in on the pictures, and then you realize, oh my, this is awful. And when you start to read the stories of segregation swimming and segregated pools and the things that different people went through because they were fighting it, that's when you, the education comes in and then that's when some of the emotion comes in because there are some really moving pieces there. So Raquel, the other day when I first heard this story, immediately resonated with me. We were both kind of in the same age range where we still remember growing up as kids mm-hmm. where you may have had the access to pools, but mm-hmm. we didn't always learn to swim. The first thing that popped in my head, and there's this infamous photo that goes back to 1964. It's at a motel in Florida, and there's a hotel pool. You know, you go to an outdoor, there's a hotel pool, and there's a bunch of black kids just bouncing around swimming in a hotel pool. And up in the upper kind of left-hand corner of the picture is the manager of the hotel with a bottle of acid pouring it into the water of the pool to get the black kids out of the pool. And that has always stuck out to me as one part of this idea that sometimes the access is what often black kids and black people were denied when it came to pools. Yeah. So 
How far reaching is the connection to being in the water, whether it's going to a pool or a beach, and persecution of African-Americans? Wow, the correlation is amazing. I didn't even know that it was there. And it's something that you, it's interesting that you brought up that picture. This must have been a trend. Um, I spoke with Randy Heyman, who is uh, Philadelphia's water commissioner, and it's interesting. He identified with one of the photos that's on exhibit here because he actually swam right there where that picture was taken. I'm struck by the fact there's a photograph of St. Louis, Missouri, the fairground park, and there was a race riot there in 1948 because a group, a dozen or so African-Americans wanted to swim in the pool. In the picture, you see a mob that's separated by a, a group of bespoke police officers, and on, sitting on the ground is an African-American male who's bloodied and beaten. And he fought in 1948 for African-Americans to have the right to swim. Well, in the exhibit today, I'm, I'm going to talk and show a photograph of myself as a little boy. And I learned to swim at Fairground Park in St. Louis. And because of his actions, by sitting down after he was beaten, he actually was standing up. I remember seeing pictures when I was younger of people pouring something into a pool. And it didn't, I thought it was bleach. When I went to this exhibit, that's when it was explained to me that at this particular point, that's not chlorine, that's acid. Because... They wanted them out the water, and so they poured acid in. And I was just, I'm like, that's acid. That's horrific. I mean, how horrific can things be that you think a, a person's just, you're in the body of water. We we're going to pour acid out, out on, on the water to get you out of the water, and we're going to hurt you while we're doing it. And there was a group, I just wanted to say, there's a group of young boys from an area school. They didn't even know this exhibit was there. The teachers just came to show them the old waterworks building. And they said, my goodness, we didn't even know that this was here. I said, can I talk to the kids? Uh, it was a mixed group of kids. And they were besides themselves. They said, I can't believe that that's what happened to black kids back then. They, it's just water. It's just water. You should be able to have fun. I grew up in, you know, swimming in pools and having lots of fun. It's just water. But the, the correlation um, between, you know, everything that went on with, the, with civil rights and segregated, uh, segregated swimming I didn't even know that it was that deep. Uh, um, you know, one of the people that I was fortunate enough to speak with was Karen Young. She heads up Waterworks. Our separation from the water, the African-American, Black American experience, the separation from water was a violent one. It was one that was deliberate and intentional, either to keep you from running away as a slave or to prevent you from having fun. It's the same storyline, all meant to separate people of color from something that is really in their DNA. It's in my DNA. An exhibition like this reminds us of the scholarly work, the history that says just the opposite is true. Not only do uh, folks of color come from royalty, which I believe in my heart, but are also people that have water running through our veins, through our DNA. And returning to that water is something that I hope we all can do. Jay, you were talking about, yeah, you had swimming pools, but we didn't really know how to swim. A lot of those swimming pools for the non-white only swimming pools, they were tiny little wading pools. You can't swim in those. You just kind of splashed around and had a little bit of fun and that was it. When you went to the other pools, those are huge pools that you can actually have recreation and you can exercise and you can swim. So, you know, diminishing the amount of fun or exercise or any kind of expertise that, that could come from be learning how to become a really talented and good swimmer that was taken away from us, along with a lot of other things. So that, 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 that correlation there is interesting because it seemed to have followed 
us into present day. You mentioned Karen Young. Now, just really hearing that, it, it's, I mean, it, it, the thing is, we're not, we're barely a generation removed mm. from those sort of things. Yeah. It's like 1964. Wasn't that long ago. That picture of the guy pouring the acid in the pool is 1964. I mean, that would have been my dad's, like, Teenage years. My mother was yeah. my mother was in her twenties. My dad was in his late teens. I would I wouldn't be born. I, that's fifteen years before I was born. Right. That's it's really Not the, when you think about fifteen years. Fifteen years ago was two thousand seven, and so just the, the the type of span where you go fifteen years from your date of birth, just go back fifteen to the mid sixties where that's not allowed. We've right. all. Each of us has kind of had our own little personal thing with pools. I don't know how to swim. That's because more so because I had a really traumatic incident when I was a kid where learning how to swim nearly cost me my life. So I said, I'm not getting back in the water unless I absolutely have to. I'll wait. I'll let it go up to my chest. But Mm -hmm. I've never been made to feel unwelcome at a pool. Mm -hmm. But there's this perception that because black people, that's just one of those things that black people, quote, don't, don't do swim. yeah like yeah. black people don't swim it's like many things you put in the parentheses that black people don't do or don't like i think maybe that also comes from this notion that since there was a generation of us that weren't welcome at the pool it was just easier for us to say ah oh, well hell we're not supposed to be doing that anyway we're doing you got it and that's how you got it, goes. it you got it and and that's exactly the, the point and you know i was cornered by uh the president of a, a swim club uh, in yaden and the first thing he said to me was, can you swim? Oh, I was like, I was hoping nobody would ask me that <laughs> because, no, I can't. But I explained to him that in my high school that we had to take swimming and I got through it. I just when I say I got through it is I got through it. I didn't really learn. I just made sure I was able to get through the class because I didn't like it. I was scared of the water, you know. And from what I the research that I've been doing, from what I understand, there is Scientists say that there are things that are written in your DNA over time from traumatic experiences, especially if they're deep, long-lasting years worth of traumatic experiences. You may not know why you're afraid of heights. You may not know why you react to the color orange the way you do. Or you may not know why you have certain phobias. There's something deep within, maybe within your history, even going back to your ancestors, as to why you have a feeling that you don't know why you have. So more of us are swimming. It's not like we don't swim. Of course, we do swim. Uh, but there are a, a lot of us that are that comfortable with it. And we can actually point back to being denied. Wow. Yeah. But I'm glad that we're breaking that whole stigma and, and that whole perception. And the young kids are swimming. I spoke with Peyton Anderson. She's a nine-year-old competitive swimmer. But unfortunately, she had to learn very early on that prejudice exists. And you're a competitive swimmer? Yes. So tell me that story again when you moved to a new area and you got in the pool. Repeat that story again for me. Um, on the very first day, I got into the pool. I had to share a lane with a little boy, and I jumped into the pool, and he jumped out. He went and asked the coach, why is she in the water with us? And so what happened after that? I didn't really know what it meant, but I told my mom, and earlier in my speech when I said I learned my mom's facial expressions, she made one of those faces and I knew that something wasn't right. So after that, she talked to the coach, and the little boy never said anything to me except nice things. Nine years old. I mean, she was born in 2013. Yeah. 
So this is somebody being told who was born in 13, probably was told in the last two or three years, Mm -hmm. you're not supposed to be in the pool. A little boy asking, why is she in the water with us? That little boy was taught. Yeah, that we're not that you're in a place you're not supposed to be. We're not exactly. supposed to belong. I've I've long said this that at times being black means having to operate as if you have to explain why you're everywhere you exactly. have to be at a given time, despite the fact you're clearly supposed to be there. I think one of the things that Karen mentioned, it is relaxing. It's another way of, you know, engaging in something that can be calming and relaxing. Learn to swim. Teach your kids how to swim. It's a life safety issue. It's an opportunity. It's it's a place to relax. It's a place to restore and transform. It is about your public health as much as it is about environmental justice. Those are some ways that have some long-lasting impacts. And you don't want to pass it down to your kids. So if you're already afraid of water, you may not be willing to teach your kids how to swim. And then we're just going to continue the cycle. And so, it's a safety question, yeah. too. You know, there's there's the fun and the enjoyment of it. Then there's also, like, who knows, whatever ways you could end up in a body of water and right. you just don't know how to swim. That's a good point. Yeah. I, I mean, and we, we really all should know how to swim. We should learn how to right. swim. I'm going to say it. I, I should learn how to swim. <laughs> Jay, you should learn how to swim. <laughs> I, there, there's there's going to be a lot of work to get me to get back into a pool <laughs> after what happened. But I will say that— uh, and we're a lot better along now because we've even seen Olympic swimmers who are black yes. now. And it's not yes. like it used to be where if you saw a black swimmer, it was once in a in a mm-hmm. blue moon. I mean, mm-hmm. and listen, I'll attest my family had a pool growing up and the, my black side of the family loves to come over to cookouts and all those kids were swimming. OK, good. So black people do swim. Thank they you. do get into the pool. <laughs> they, at least we are getting back in the pool. We are. We are jumping in there. I think that at least shows this generation, especially the young lady, Peyton, because I, I remember hearing her voice. She's just so confident about mm-hmm. swimming now. That does change the dynamic of this. How long is this exhibit going to be at the Waterworks? It's going to be there through September. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so all the way through time. summer. Yeah, absolutely. That's Perfect time. Raquel, really quick, what do you have on tap for Bridging Philly this weekend? This weekend, we will be featuring Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw. Uh, wow. We wanted to talk with her to kind of close out Women's History Month. We're featuring her as a woman in a male-dominated business, of course, as the top cop of one of the largest cities in America, a black woman at that. So we're featuring her just to talk about her rise through the ranks, some of the experiences she's been through, how she deals with the constant criticism. And, of course, we'll get into a little bit with the, the crime situation, the gun violence, the carjackings, what they're doing about that, and uh, about her, the person, the mom. She's a mom. She has uh, to have her me time, and she has to do some self-care, so we'll talk about that as well. Thank you for joining us again today, Raquel. You can follow her, of course, on Twitter at Raquel on Air. If you want to find out more about the story, you simply got to check the description, the show notes below it here when you're listening to the podcast. You can also, of course, check out Bridging Philly. It's up this weekend on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can hear it on KYW News Radio, 1039 FM and 1060 AM. I'm Jay Scott Smith. I'm Brian Seltzer. I'm Sabrina Boyd-Circa. That's it for this Thursday. We'll close out the week tomorrow catching up with Mark Lucher, the Temple professor who went viral on Twitter for posting about an essay writing seminar with free pizza that oddly nobody showed up to. You can normally get me to show up. All you have to do is say free pizza. Plus, we'll also hear about a new production at the Arden Theater and we'll have this week's Philly Sports Fan of the Week. Have a great Thursday. We'll be back at you on Friday.